You're listening to Teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. Hey, I want to say uh, hello to those of you who are newer with us. I actually happen to know that there's a good group of you who have uh, hopped in with us even during the middle of of the pandemic and everything that's been going on. You found your way around our church family, and I love that. Look forward to getting to know you, hopefully, at some point. We... uh, for, what you, for right now, at least, what you need to know is that as a church, we're running everything through our life groups, and that's not unusual for us other than uh, beginning in, this, in the fall, we're starting to have our life groups host their own Sunday gatherings. So I'm actually recording this right now on Thursday during a lunch break. We got a few handfuls of people who are here live with me, and we've made it available for up to 100 people, so if at some point you'd want to come join us on a Thursday, you're more than welcome. Let me tell you why we landed on this as our plan for the fall, at least for the beginning of the fall. And for what it's worth, we've already been, we've already been told that our plan is too much too soon. We've also been told that our plan is overly fearful and we should be doing more than we are. Uh, the truth is, either of those could be true. I, I don't know. We don't know. Um, it's hard to know the exact right balance of precaution and a desire to get back to, to life as we know it. And uh, for what it's worth, we've already received... Um, those, those concerns from folks. Our thought process leading to our current plan was primarily guided by rising COVID-19 case numbers in our state, by the decisions of local school boards. So local schools deciding to not meet in person for the first month back did factor into our decision on how we're approaching the fall. And then another factor for, for us, at least, is the strength of our life groups. We actually have more people in life groups than, than come on Sundays, and so we have the opportunity to push everything into life groups, and that means we'd have plenty of space for anyone who would want to join us on a Sunday, and that tends to be unique among churches and is, and is uh, I think, a unique opportunity that we actually have where people won't be left out if only our small groups are hosting Sunday gatherings. So with all that said, that's our reasoning. If you disagree, you might be right. Uh, we don't know exactly. We're, we're doing our best, and as circumstances change, we are always discussing other options, and we'll let you know if we decide to, to pivot in, either, in any direction as we move forward. So with all that said, let me, let me do a bit of an intro here for our sermon today and our, our series. So we've been doing some work in this series looking at particular cultural issues during a year that at least so far feels like it is drunk and on fire. So, uh, so far we've talked about God's use of hardship to produce glory in us. We've talked about our polarized, divisive political climate right now. And we've talked about racial injustice, all of which have been brought to the forefront uh, in some ways yet again over these past few months. And a lot of the series, we're trying to look at some larger external issues that affect us and just help us think through them as God's people. Today, what I wanna do is get way more personal and interpersonal and be much, much more practical because I think what we'll talk about today can make everything else we've talked about in the series thus far much worse if we don't have a firm grip on our topic for today. So our scripture is from Colossians chapter three. If you wanna turn there with me, Colossians chapter three. I wanna look with you at verses 12 through 17. So Colossians chapter three, 12 through 17. Here's what it says. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, 
compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So Paul here paints a beautiful picture of what the community of Jesus's followers should be like and should aspire to. He calls us to pursue becoming a a community of compassion, of kindness, of patience, of forgiveness. He calls us to be full of peace. He says that love is to bind us together in harmony, like different notes that are brought together into one unified symphony because of the love we have for each other. It says that our hearts should be full of thankfulness to God with a deep abiding purpose of glorifying God in all that we do. Specifically, look back at verse 13, and this is where I wanna spend our time for today. Verse 13, he says, bearing with one another and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Let me contrast verse 13 with the spirit of the age in our country right now. So I would never feel comfortable admitting publicly to being a fan of the comedian Dave Chappelle. Um, I would not even feel comfortable publicly admitting that I'd ever seen one of his shows. But with that being said, in one of his shows recently, he did a a little bit where he says, I'm going to do some impressions for you. And he does, I mean, he's ridiculous. He's inappropriate if you're familiar with him. And he does a couple impressions. And then he says, okay, guess who I'm doing now? Who am I impersonating now? And he does this offensive voice, to be honest with you. And he says, uh, if I catch you ever doing anything wrong, uh, I'm going to ruin your life. It could be in 15 years or 15 years ago. I will ruin your life if I find out about it. And then he says, okay, who was that? And people in the audience start yelling out names. A couple people yell Trump. And Chappelle goes, that's you. I was impersonating you, the audience. That's what I think of when I look at you. And everyone doesn't know what to do, so there's a couple of, of quiet giggles. And this was his way of putting some language around what seems to be a growing cultural reality, that when some public figure sins or just does or says something they shouldn't or isn't socially correct, there seems to be very little patience bearing with forgiveness, and instead there's a rush to condemn, to reject, and to distance ourselves from that person, maybe even making them pay for it however we can. It's something that has been called cancel culture, And as you'd expect, just that term itself is controversial, but here's how dictionary.com defines it. Cancel culture is defined by the practice of withdrawing support for or canceling public figures and companies after they've done or said something considered objectionable or offensive. So recently, former President Barack Obama was interviewed, and he had a quote about it. He said, I do get the sense among some people that there is this belief that the way of me making change is to be as judgmental as possible about others. 
And that's enough. If I tweet or hashtag about how you didn't do something right or used the wrong word or verb, then I can sit back and feel pretty good about myself and about how woke I was. That's not bringing about change. If all you're doing is casting stones, then you're probably not going to get that far. That's easy to do. I think in some ways the pandemic has heightened some of our relational strain and our division. If you think about it, the way that I might catch the virus is you. You're the one that I have to be suspicious of and look out for because I don't know where you've been and if you wore your mask there and I don't know where the people were that you were around before then. And so people themselves become the carrier of this invisible virus. And even when we are in the same space, I can't see your face. I don't know what sort of face you're making. You might like me. You might not like me. I'm just looking at your eyes. And our, our suspicion and level of concern and our divisions can grow. So we have this cultural moment of heightened judgment and condemnation, of fear, of distrust and suspicion. And I definitely have got some concerns about the limited sort of public discourse and discussion possible when everyone's fearful that one wrong word might cost them their jobs. But that's actually not my concern. I, I'm not trying to make the world act like the church. That's always going to bear more frustration than fruit. And in some ways, I even get why, apart from Jesus, someone would want to distance themselves from anyone who says something that hurts or offends them. That, that actually even makes sense to me. My concern is not trying to get the world to act differently so much as I want to make sure as the church that we don't begin to act like the world in this way. What I don't want is for cancel culture to affect us in such a way that it robs us of our ability to fulfill the high and beautiful calling of Scripture in places like Colossians 3, where instead of when we are bothered or hurt by someone, we distance ourselves and condemn and reject and make them pay, we're pursuing being a people of compassion and understanding and forgiveness and forbearance. In other words, we want a gospel culture, not a cancel culture. So with that said, as the setup, I want to zoom right in and be really, really practical. Um, to use the language of Colossians 3, I want to look at three different types of complaints that we might have against one another. Three categories of ways that we can be bothered or hurt or offended and, and offer some tools to navigate that as followers of Jesus. This is uh, The list I'm going to give you is actually something John brought up a couple of weeks ago, and I want to go into a little bit more detail on it. So here we go. Three categories of complaints that we might have against one another using that language of Colossians 3. Number one, sin. Number two, unmet expectation. Number three, misunderstanding three different categories. You could probably think of more. In my observation, these are the ones that continue to come up in our community. Sin, unmet expectation, and misunderstanding. How do we handle those? How do we make sure that our community looks and operates more like the church of God than of a cancel culture? I'm going to go ahead and give you my, my big idea right now, my thesis. Here's where I'm, where I'm going and where I'm coming from. As the community of Jesus, we are both enabled and commanded to forgive sin. So not even sin separates us from one another or God because God forgives us in Christ. Not even sin separates us from one another because of the resources we have in Christ. And my concern is when I too often see not even sin, but unmet expectation or misunderstanding cause us to separate from one another. 
Something has gone wrong when that is happening. We have the resources to forgive sin. There's no way that unmet expectation or misunderstanding could be causing us to pull apart and distance ourselves. We move forward together. Even when someone sins against us, we forgive. And if that's not the reality, then I grow concerned that we resemble more cancel culture than gospel culture. So let me work through them and just give some points here and try to maybe expose a few things. So number one, sin. We are sinners, we exist with other sinners, and so we sin against each other. And sin hurts. It hurts when you're sinned against. Again, I wanna read verse 13 in Colossians chapter three. It says, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. So, so you must, you must forgive. This is the only shot we have at following Jesus together as a community. This is the only shot that you have to walk deeply with other people for any length of time. If, if you're content with shallow, superficial relationships, then you might can make it without being rich in forgiveness. But if you want depth in your relationships with other people, you are going to have to be rich in forgiveness. And this is the key phrase from that verse. It says, as the Lord has forgiven you. So how does Jesus forgive us? Does he forgive us only if our sin wasn't a big deal or wasn't hurtful? No. Does he forgive us only if we pay him back sufficiently? <laughs> no, no, he forgives fully, freely, and forever. That's the forgiveness that we have in Christ. So uh, with my kids, we have a reconciliation routine. My kids are like uh, all children. They have moments of wonderful beauty and kindness and grace that will melt your heart, and then they can just as quickly become little monsters, and you have no idea how in the world they're doing what it is that they're doing right in front of your face. And so we have a routine, a reconciliation routine, when one of my kids sins against the other. And the routine is there's, a, there's always a consequence depending on what happened. And then the, uh, the perpetrator will go to the victim and they'll say, I'm sorry that I, fill in the blank, so I, I'm sorry that I pulled your hair and slapped you in the face and tackled you and took your toy. And they needed to be specific. And what we found, what Courtney and I found was we would watch that play out and the other, the victim child would look back and they would say, it's okay. And Courtney and I would kind of look and think, well, no, it's not okay. In fact, just one of those things would not be okay, especially not all four of them in sequence. These are the things that if you don't stop doing at some point as an adult, you go to jail for them. These are definitely not okay. So we had to change our routine where the perpetrator now has to come to the victim to say, I'm sorry that I pulled your hair and slapped you in the face and tackled you and took your toy. Will you forgive me? And the victim is not allowed to say, it's okay. They say, yes, I will forgive you. And I, I can't help but wonder if some of you think that to forgive someone means you're telling them what they did to you is okay. That is not what you're saying. Sin is not okay. Sin is a big deal. Sin necessitated the death of Jesus for our salvation. It was the only way that our sin could be forgiven and removed from us. When you forgive someone, you are not saying what you did is no big deal. You are not saying don't worry about it. You are not saying it's okay. When you forgive someone, you're saying you sinned and sin is never okay. 
but what Jesus has done is sufficient for us to be forgiven for our sin, both in relationship with God and for me to extend that forgiveness to you in our relationship. Forgiveness is not saying that sin was no big deal. It means that you release them from the debt of it, that you absorb the cost of it and you don't take it out on them. Forgiveness means that you choose to not treat that person as their sin, but instead you treat that person as who they are in Christ. That's how 2 Corinthians 5, 16 and 17 talks. It says, from now on, therefore we regard no one according to the flesh or according to their sin nature. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away and behold, the new has come. Forgiveness means we treat that person as the image bearer, and if they're a Christian, as the person they are in Christ, and we don't treat them as their sin. It doesn't mean we don't let people experience consequences for their sin. They do, they should. It means we treat them as, the, as in Christ instead of as their sin. We have a cancel culture that does not value forgiveness, but the Bible says it should be a definitive mark of the covenant community of faith. It's supposed to be part of our beauty that we stick it out with one another even when we sin against each other. We have the resources for conflict to lead to more depth and intimacy instead of breaking us apart. But when being sinned against, painful though it can be, causes you to say, either you must go or I must go, then cancel culture has invaded the church. We're in need of gospel renewal because we're called to forgive and bear with one another in sin, in actual sin, And if that's the case, how much more so do we stick it out together through just unmet expectations and misunderstandings, which leads us to number two, unmet expectations. The third category, second category, I'm sorry, second category of complaint. I'm going to pull a bait and switch on you here for the sake of time. I uh, want to cover unmet expectations on our midweek podcast. There are a few things I want to say about it, and I do not have time to go into it right now. So I want to encourage you to check out the midweek podcast, and uh, I'll go more in on unmet expectations. So let me skip to number three, misunderstanding. Misunderstanding. When I say misunderstanding, uh, by that, there's all kinds of misunderstandings. I mean a particular type. I mean assuming and assigning a motive or reason why that person did or said what they did or said. Assigning, assuming and assigning a motive or reason why that person did or said what they, what they did. A reason that may or may not be accurate. It's the assumption that you know why someone did or said what they did. Let me show you a little video. Jake, you can fire it. This is from a 1944 study called uh, An Experimental Study in Apparent Behavior. Scientific American had an article on it recently. You can see the video. What they did with this little video is they showed it to a a room full of people, and then they simply asked, uh, what's happening? Describe what's happening. And they let people watch this short video, and then people wrote down what was happening in the video. In the entire study, according to Scientific American, only one person correctly said what's actually happening in this video. It's geometric shapes moving around on a screen. That's what's actually happening. Everyone else said some elaborate story that they came up with as to what was happening. Well, let's see. 
the, the circle is a woman and the big triangle is a man who thought that she was coming to meet her, but she shows up with another man, the little triangle, and the big triangle is beating up the little triangle and she's scared, so she runs in the house because she doesn't like seeing men acting this way. And it was all kinds of different elaborate stories that people came up with to describe what was going on on the screen. And the point of the study was that you and I innately think of things in stories. We put stories around things. We do it without knowing we're doing it. It's just, it's just who we are. We insert things into stories intuitively. So we make up stories about why so-and-so looked at us the way that they did. When I don't see someone for a long time, I make up a story about why. I put that data into some kind of story. When I see someone post something on social media that I don't like, I make up a reason as to why they posted it. We, we insert everything into stories, stories about our spouses, our families, our bosses, our pastors. So it's not simply that your friend forgot to call. You insert his or her failure to call you into a story about why. You assume to know their motive, their reasoning, their thought process. And this can get us into all sorts of trouble, especially if we tend to assign negative motives when we think of the stories that data in our lives fits into. This is increasingly the pattern in our country. Everyone seems very cynical, assuming the worst about everyone else's motives, very, very skeptical about why people might be doing the things that they're doing. I had another uh, thing with my, with my family that, that drew my attention to this reality. I've been recently introducing my kids to Scooby-Doo, the 1960s original Scooby-Doo's where the characters run across the screen back and forth with the ghost chasing them and somehow it totally works. I don't know why, but it does. They're wonderful. And my kids have been into it. And a few days ago, um, they said, can we watch a Scooby-Doo before we go to bed? And it was a little too late. And so I said, let's, uh, no, it's too late. But you know what? I'll actually let you watch one in the morning. We don't watch a ton of TV, but you know what? I like to give you good things. You can watch a Scooby-Doo when you wake up in the morning. So we head upstairs. We do our bedtime routine. Um, I'm, I'm tucking my kids in every night, kiss them, hug them, tell them that I love them. Jesus loves them. And as I'm walking out of the room, my daughter says, wait, I know why you said we could watch an episode when we wake up. You're hoping we're going to forget about it. So when we wake up, we don't get to watch an episode. Now, that's not at all what I was doing. I was really just thinking, it's too late. Let's watch an episode in the morning. But somehow, between the time that I said, I love you and Jesus loves you, kissed and hugged, and the time that I had said, we can watch Scooby-Doo in the morning, my daughter had assigned to me a negative motive for why I did what I did and turned me into the villain of her life in the process. The truth is, I like to give my kids what they want so long as what they want's good for them. Uh, if they ask me for bread, I'm glad to give them bread. If they ask me for a scorpion, I'm not gonna give them that because I love them. And Scooby-Doo is somewhere between bread and scorpion and they love it and it brings me joy to give them the things that they love when those things are okay for them. That's all that I was doing. But she took my words and actions, which I actually intended for good, and turned them into bad in her mind by assigning me a negative motive. Now, she's only seven. She's got to get out of my house when she's 18. So we got 11 years to work on that before she's got to go. I just want you to notice 
that it is possible to take almost any action and turn it into evil if you simply assign a negative motive as the reason why that person took that action. Someone could say, I'd like to bless you with the beautiful grace gift of a 1960s episode of Scooby-Doo. And you could actually turn that to evil if you assign a negative motive to it. As Christians, we believe in total depravity, meaning sin has infected and affected every aspect of our lives. But we do not believe in utter depravity, that people are always doing the absolute worst thing possible. That's not true. And maybe... Maybe your dad loves you and he's glad to give you the relatively good gift of Scooby-Doo and there isn't anything else to it. Be careful the stories you tell yourself about other people. This person called to ask you if you'd go help with something, but they didn't ask first, how are you doing? What's going on with you? Oh, I know what he was thinking. He doesn't care about me. He only cares about what I can do for him careful. She didn't invite me to that event I saw pictures of. You know why? Because she doesn't think of us as church family the way that I do. I saw how he looked at me. I know what he was really thinking. I know when she says this, what she really means is that. Some of you have experienced this sort of weirdness where all of a sudden you feel like you're speaking in code because everything you do isn't what you really meant and people think you meant something else and they're reading into your words and the whole thing just falls apart because words don't even have meaning anymore. Proverbs chapter 18 actually has multiple warnings about assuming you know why someone did something or what they're thinking and rushing to judgment. So in verse two of chapter 18, It says, a fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. Then in verse 13, if one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. Let me read a quote from Peter and Jerry Scazzaro in a book called Emotionally Healthy Relationships. They talk about this. They say, the ninth commandment, meaning the ninth of of the Ten Commandments. The ninth commandment reads... You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. Every time we make an assumption about someone who has hurt or disappointed us without confirming it, we believe believe a lie about this person in our head. Because we've not checked it out with him or her, it's very possible that we're believing something untrue. It is also likely that we'll pass that false assumption around to others. When we leave reality for a mental creation of our own doing, meaning hidden assumptions, we create a counterfeit world. When we do this, it can properly be said that we exclude God from our lives because God does not exist outside of reality and truth. In doing so, we wreck relationships by creating endless confusion and conflict. The Bible has much to say about not taking on the role of judge to others. You are not healthy if you stop giving the benefit of the doubt to people and you start getting suspicious, if you're assigning negative motives without confirmation. All right. So now, let me give us some positive steps to take. Let me give you just a few positive steps to take. If you will just follow these, this will improve marriage, friendships, co-work relationships. They'll improve every single relationship in your life if you'll adopt these. First, you have three options. You have three options. Whether we're dealing with sin, unmet expectation, or misunderstanding, whatever the complaint, we've got three options. When you're hurt, bothered, let down, angry with a brother or sister in Christ, three options. First, you can drop it and forgive. 
You can let love cover a multitude of sins. Two, you can confront, clarify, and forgive. Or three, you can let bitterness and resentment grow. That one is the bad option, and I'd like for you to not pick that one, please. Number one, drop it and forgive. Sometimes you just need to drop it. You don't need to do anything about the fact that not enough people called you on your birthday to tell you happy birthday. You don't need to talk to anyone or bring it up. You don't need to process it. You don't need to pay somebody to help you process it. You just need to let love cover a multitude of sins and move on. It's forgiven and I'm past it. You need to drop that theory you have about that person. Just drop it. Bear with others in love. Don't make it a big deal. Don't bring it up. Our culture is addicted to offense taking, whereas scripture would call us to overlook offenses. Proverbs 19.11, good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. It's our glory to overlook an offense. I'll give you just a little tip to help you with this. Try acting like you're the other person's defense attorney. What I mean by that is, if you're quick to assume a negative motive, try in your mind to think of a positive motive for why they might have done what they did, or at least maybe a neutral motive. Imagine for yourself, you have to defend this person, and in your mind, try to think through, what's a positive or neutral reason why they might have said or done what they did? And see if that doesn't help you realize that sometimes you just need to drop it and forgive it. Second, sometimes you need to go to the person and clear it up. You need to go to them and you need to say, hey, you, you did this, you said that. I assume that you did that because of blank. Is that true? Am I right? Have I come to a right conclusion about why you did that? Now, maybe you're right. And by going to them, you give them a chance to apologize and repent. That's a good thing. Maybe you're wrong. And then by going to them, they get to clarify and you give yourself a chance to repent for assigning a negative motive and being someone's judge when it actually wasn't a negative motive that was there in the first place. But either way, that's a win. The third option is the bad one. The third option is cancel culture where bitterness, resentment, and distance are left. So I don't know which of the first two you need to choose. Um, some of us are more inclined towards one or the other. So some of, some of us are very tentative to approach people to seek out to clarification. Others of us are overly sensitive. We analyze everything and we think any offense, big or small, needs to be brought up and talked about for years. I'm just giving you the categories. I want to trust the Spirit of God to lead us in which ones we should pick. And in conclusion, whatever complaint you have, you must forgive. You must forgive. If they sinned against you, if it was genuine sin and they were wrong and you are hurt, you forgive. If it was unmet expectation, nobody sinned. You just expected something that didn't happen, which can be painful and can cause grief and can be hurtful. Those are human emotions and they're fine. But if you hold it against other people, then you are wrong. And if it's a misunderstanding, maybe even you've been assuming a negative motive that may or may not be present, seek to understand what they actually meant. So if someone sins against us, we forgive them. How much more then do we continue to move forward in good standing with one another when someone simply, simply didn't do what we'd hoped? Or if it's actually us who sinned by assuming a negative, a negative motive. In any community of any kind, whether it's family, neighborhood, friend, group, coworkers, you are going to get sinned against and people are gonna sin against and you are gonna sin against others. You're gonna have expectations of others that they don't meet. 
You're going to have expectations. They're going to have expectations of you that you don't meet. And you're going to have misunderstandings where you think someone means something they didn't actually mean, where you misinterpret intentions, and all of it creates pain and conflict. And if the only real tool you have to deal with that is to distance yourself from people who hurt you, then you will never be able to have significant, lasting relationships with anyone in any sphere of your life. The quality and depth of your relationships is proportional to your ability to forgive. The quality and depth of the relationships in our church are going to be proportional to our ability to forgive. And praise God that through Christ, we have inexhaustible resources of forgiveness because that is how God treats us in Christ. So let's have a better culture in our midst than what exists in the world where broken people here are given grace and space to mess up and to sin with, with forbearance extended, with patience extended, and without it having to tear us apart. Let's be a beautiful contrast community in a world that desperately needs it. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for your word and for the beautiful picture that you paint for us in Colossians chapter three. Would you help us to continue to push in that direction? Would you make this a glowing strength in our church family, God, that we meet each other with grace and mercy and forgiveness when we genuinely sin against each other, when we just let each other down and we don't meet expectation, and even when we misunderstand and assume intentions that may or may not have even been there. God, would you fill us with the grace um, that you extend to us that we might then extend it to other people so that our forgiveness would be abounding, that it would be Um, something that we're known for, that it's a visible evidence that you're at work in our hearts and in our minds and in our community. We ask all this for your glory and our good. Amen. Amen. Love you guys.